Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast with your host, as ever, myself, Alex Connor, where we talk everything training, nutrition, and lifestyle collectively. And things are well and truly starting to open back up, at least here in Australia, for the most part. I know the rest of the world and some of you are still a little bit behind, but be patient, do your due diligence, and things will certainly move in the right direction. And on that topic, being back in gyms, I'm in conversation today with the man himself, the muscle doc, Mr. Jordan Shallow. Now, Jordan is an amalgamation of a chiropractor, strength and conditioning coach, powerlifter, and he's also the founder of Prescript.com. And in this conversation, once again, we unpack his journey, what he's learned, what his biggest wins were, what he's correlated from his experience over a multitude of different topics, of different roles, and uh, again, dig out some real gold for you guys and actionable takeaways from real life experience. So let's dive in. But just before I do, I just want to say, as always, a quick thank you to those who continue to leave a positive rating and a review. I really appreciate that. Helps the channel grow and it helps me know that you are getting something positive, as always, out of this, which at the end of the day is my goal. I'm just a man who loves to talk about his passions with other like-minded people too. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation this week with Dr. Jordan Shallow. Jordan, welcome to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast. Thank you for your time this morning. You were just telling me that you're not actually too far away. You're just across the border in New South Wales. Yeah, man. Been in, well, just got to Foster uh, yesterday. I've been in Australia for about three months. Um, was in Melbourne and then in Bondi Beach for the better part of two, two and a half months and said, let's just hit the road. So here we are. Yeah, man. And as we said, what a, what a place to be. Not... Uh, not a bad place to be stuck in the world, but are you missing home? Are you missing any family? Uh, so, I mean, a little background on me. I've been like technically homeless for like two, two and a half years. So I don't have like a mailing address to call my own. So I've, with what I do for work, I've just been on the road. I've a few laps of the globe in the past, yeah, I don't know, two years, two and a half years now. And so no, I mean, home is, I mean, I'm, I'm in someone else's home. I'm renting this home from them, but uh yeah, home is wherever the Airbnb says is says it is for that day. So not not really, man. Like I, tra- I travel with my partner, and we uh, we teach the same stuff, and I get to lift weights and do that. So no, I don't really miss anything. Really, it's the same day. Just go to a coffee shop, maybe hop on a podcast, go train. Doesn't really matter where it is. So it's like you're like a gypsy, mate. Sure, without the negative connotation. Well, this is this is true, depending on where you go. Saying that, a lot of the gypsies back home, man, I tell you what, they're driving around in like these M5s, well, back where I'm from anyway, and you're like, hang on a minute, you guys live in caravans? What? So they got a, a, a very unique way of uh, living, that's for sure. But a very rich lifestyle, I'm sure, getting to travel the world and see different cultures. Yeah, oh, the best. Like, I, I kind of feel more like Anthony Bourdain. That's what I feel like. I just like see the culture through the keyhole of a gym. It's my favorite. <laughs> what are, before we move on, what are some of the, I guess, within this lifestyle since you've been able to live it, what are the, the main, I guess, learnings that you've taken out of being able to travel and just sort of go from place to place and like you said, see sort of different gym facilities and live in that environment? Uh, the people are pretty much the same. 
I think that's the biggest takeaway. And I've been to like some pretty weird places that are like, would otherwise we look to be very different, but like it, within the walls of the gym, at least, like people are very, very similar, at least more similar than they are different. Um, so that's been kind of neat, like a, a, a cultural perspective. I mean, I grew up in a place that was kind of insular and like not many people left. So to be able to get out, like, oh, like, yeah, people are people, regardless of whether you're in the Middle East or Europe or Australia or, yeah. Yeah, so that's been kind of like the biggest thing for me. And that's what I enjoy about it the most is there's a certain, there's a certain predictability about it. Like, yeah, like kind of not seen one, seen them all because every time you see one, they're still, it's still impactful. Like it's still, um, it's still memorable. So that's kind of probably my favorite part about it. Yeah. I think that's one of the coolest things about the culture or the iron culture, if you like, is that wherever you go in the world, and I know this has been the case for me and probably a lot of people listening, you'll always find common ground in the gym. It doesn't matter where you are, you know, that may, you know, you say you're in a new city, you're in a new town, go to a gym, you know, you're open-minded, you you meet some people, they introduce you to some people or they might, Hey man, like here's some places to go visit or here's some places to go see. And that's something that's always really helped me when I've moved to a new place, be able to kind of integrate and make some new friends that have some like-minded interests. So that's actually a really good point. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't, drink or do any like kind of normal social niceties or anything so yeah it is kind of like there you can like you said find common ground so it's like wherever you are you're kind of home if there's a gym around which has been which has been great and a blessing for the past couple of years Mm. and before we move on as always introduction wise can you give people a bit of a rundown for those who are not aware of who you are what you do and more importantly why you're so passionate about it yeah. Um, so my name is Jordan Shell. I'm a, a chiropractor and strength and conditioning coach. Uh, so I'm from Canada originally. I went to grad school in California. I uh, practiced in the corporate setting as a chiropractor at Apple's world headquarters. So I was working in Cupertino for a few years and then took on the role as head strength and conditioning coach at Stanford University with the rugby team uh, while simultaneously opening up kind of two clinics in the Bay Area, just south of San Francisco, just east of San Francisco. Uh, at the same time, started a podcast and online e-commerce business that has evolved in multiple iterations over the past four or five years. Um, I compete in powerlifting in the 110 and 125 kilo class. And for the better part of the last two years, as mentioned, I uh, kind of been traveling around on behalf of this company that I started, um, kind of taking a foothold in the education space in the fitness industry, I'm creating curriculum for uh, larger franchise gyms, as well as an internal curriculum for coaches to take outside of those gyms, just more in the realm of upskilling, integrating sort of that sports performance background with a bit of more of a clinical background and just trying to kind of raise the industry standards around coaching and personal training. Yeah, that's fantastic. And again, took the words out of my mouth, a lot of really great subjects to delve into. And I want to unpack that a little bit more before we do. I want to talk about, chiropractics a lot of people when they think of a chiropractor this is my experience at least they think of people just cracking bones and manipulating the body in weird ways this is obviously something that you're very aware of perhaps you get clients and people who are like oh is this what you do man can you just slay some misconceptions and perhaps give some context to what a chiropractor does or should do and how you sort of practice that versus what you think the stigma is yeah, I mean, the context of does and should do 
is is that's a very that's a very thick line, right? Because I, there's yeah. look stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, right? So obviously people who start off a conversation like that have been exposed to it with high enough frequency that that's how they compartmentalize the scope of practice, and they're not wrong. And hence, why a lot of what we do is in the education space. So I mean, we, I say we. We coach primarily personal trainers and coaches, but we have an increasing interest from the clinical community, which has been my uh, inadvertent focus of like developing curriculum is to start to draw attention and and actually bridge a gap between clinical theory and practical application. So um, what chiropractors should do, you know, there's, there's an equal stigma on the physical therapy side. And I think somewhere in between the two scopes of practice, there's a center of that Venn diagram that actually should encompass manual therapy. Um, so chiropractor might crack your neck and send you on your way where physical therapists might, you know, put ice and stem and give you very terrible exercises drawn and photocopied on the same piece of paper for the past 20 years or however long that clinician's been in practice. So, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, like I can't defend the current state of chiropractic. I can only try and improve it. So people are not wrong in assuming that. Um, but if you're vetting your healthcare professionals in the same way you would find a diner in a city you've never been before, that's kind of on you as well, right? So there is a, there are good clinicians out there, and that's what all people always say, like, oh, there's good janitors and there's bad janitors. There's good, you know, there's there's good cops and there's bad cops. There's good chiropractors and there's bad chiropractors. It's like, yeah, but there seems to be a disproportionate amount of bad chiropractors out there. Uh, I mean, empathetic, like it's a, it's not a great business model, right? Like you're trading time for money, which is immediately going to bottleneck as most of you know trainers and coaches know, like bottleneck how much money you can earn and racking up a decent amount of debt and being able to be licensed in North America. You're looking at the better part of eight or nine years of postgraduate education, which is not cheap. Um, so people default to like the business route, which is in out five minutes, get the next guy in, and try and keep the lights on, keep the bills paid, keep food on the table. So like, I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea that like most chiropractors are stigmatized as that. And I think rightfully so. So for me, it was like, I was practicing in a very different way. Um, but me in an office in California cannot necessarily change, you know, the standard of the industry. So I figured, all right, if I, if I get mad at someone every single time, they're like, Oh, you're just going to crack my neck. It's like, that's my problem. That's not there. So I took it upon myself and hopefully, you know, before I'm done, this will hopefully start to change people's outlook, especially in kind of in my profession. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's something I want to just quickly backpedal and delve into as well, why you've brought it up, Jordan, because that's a really good point. You said, you know, the way you vet, you know, a practitioner or a clinician, uh, you know, et cetera. So what, because obviously this is something that I've got a question is a lot of people will be going, you know, how a lot of people have had bad experiences, good experiences. As you said, there's always good cups, bad cups, et cetera. What are some key things, if any, that people can do, listeners can do when they are trying to identify a good clinician, a practitioner, for example, are there any, apart from the obvious main red flags or things that they should be looking for or questions that they should ask to ensure that they are actually with someone who obviously there's always, you can't shop around. There's always someone possibly better or someone might explain it differently. You've got to give someone the benefit of the doubt, but what are some key things that people can do to make sure that they're in good hands? Yeah. I think that's, you're one of the few who's asked it in that way. Cause like most people ask it in the positive and like, if you examine if you examine from a statistical perspective, really anything, you want to examine things with a high level of specificity and a high level of sensitivity, right? Specific, 
interventions are good at ruling things in, uh, sensitive interventions are good at ruling things out. So you're the first person to take a, like an actual statistical sensitive approach, which I, I think is the best way to go in ruling things out, right? So if, for me, if they will take x-rays or advanced imaging on a first visit or promote that, that's usually a bad habit that chiropractors get into. They can kind of tell you likely where their mindset is. Like, and there are cases where like advanced imaging, x-ray, MRI, CT, diagnostic ultrasound are indicated. But if you go in with like no acute injury, no neurological symptoms, no loss of bowel and bladder function, and the first thing the guy says is like, we need to see the alignment of your spine, yeah, alarm bells are starting to go off. Because this will tell you like the diagnostics are based purely off of structure. They're trying to see the relative position of the vertebra on the superimposed two-dimensional image called an X-ray where it's like, they're likely going to be treating the structure. It's like, that's, that's no treatment, right? We have to look at the function, right? So the big red, one of the big red flags for me is always an x-ray on a first visit. That's something that I tell most people to cover their wallets and start to back out of the room. Um, advertising, the way people market has always been one for me. Like, you know, I've never been one. There's in, in America, there's a website called Yelp, which is like a social, um, ratings page that a lot of clinicians will use. Uh, I've never for my practice done any form of advertising other than word of mouth. So people are going to like devalue their service. Like your first visit is free. It's like, Nope, sorry. That's not like imagine a, you know, a plastic surgeon going like, Hey, your first one's free. It's like, uh, I don't know if I want you rolling the dice without that sort of skin in the game. Like if you're not invested into, you know, how it is that, you're getting treated. It's like you kind of are at the mercy of whoever's willing to like sully their services down to a cheaper price. So it might sound a little paradoxical, but like if someone's inexpensive, be very wary of that because you get what you pay for. Right. And same from clinicians. Like I know a lot of clinicians that are good that try and be competitively priced and try to be cheap. It's like, look, if you charge peanuts, you're going to get monkeys. And that's the same thing with anything. Like I say that to trainers. I say that to coaches. I say that to clinicians alike. And it's like, you get what you pay for. It's like when you're, when you're on the other side of that, you get what you charge. It's like the yeah. second I started raising my rates, my problems just went away. Like people I, people I worked with got better quicker and they were way more appreciative than the people that didn't appreciate me or weren't getting better. They went somewhere else. Um, so true. So yeah, probably the two main ones, honestly, man, x-rays and third, like in our community, do they train? Because you have to dispense with a lot of antiquated notions of rehabilitation, pain management, injury risk management when you're actually an athlete yourself. Because you realize quickly with when you start to test these things on yourself, like that fucking torn and broken and dislocated and separated and herniated and fractured, like name it, I've done it. And it's, you know, I have to dispense really quickly. It's like, do I stick to what I've learned in school by someone who learned that 30 years ago, or do I try and find a new way to actually fix it? Because I'm going to spin my wheels here as an athlete trying to use these, you know, these medieval interventions with, you know, the injuries that I have. So I find that to be something that's super helpful in a vetting process is like, frankly, do they lift, which is kind of a silly, uh, almost meme worthy type sentiment, but it's 100% in my experience been, been the case because that, that is a acid test for um, their knowledge and how well they can apply it. And they'll realize that when they try and apply antiquated knowledge, they're, they're going to end up not being able to actually fix the problems they have. So 
that, that those are probably my big three. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. Like you said, oftentimes, yeah, you you've got to sort of practice what you preach. And one of the prerequisites I recommend usually is that that person who you're going to see are they working with people who are within your field or do they do it themselves? And I actually recently, as a real life example sent one of my clients who's always had these back problems. He's like, man, I can't fix these back problems. I'm like, right. And this is one of the reasons for my question. I sort of build a network of really good people around me. So, I mean, I can't do everything. I'm not a generalist. I try to be a specialist, but have a bit of a crossover. So I'm like, look, that's not my area, man. I'm not going to try and do it, but I know someone who can. Anyway, went to this person, like you said, charges extortionate amounts of money, but he's very good. He lifts himself. He's worked with all world champion bodybuilders, etc. Anyway, guy finds the problem in the, the second console. My client's absolutely over the moon. He's like, I've been to physios. I've been to like, I've been to this many people. And he's like, and this guy just found it. And just again, to highlight your point, got him an x-ray, did some basic analysis. He had a 10 mil difference between his right and his left leg. He's like, your back is amazing, <laughs> like the flexibility, but this was like throwing them off. So that seems to be the main thing and seems to be working, having a bit of a heel lift. But I think, as you said, it, sometimes it can be just these basics. And you said one of my favorite quotes there, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. So true. So true. I think, you know, it's not always like you don't always get what you pay for, but usually if someone is charging a certain amount, you know, and they've obviously got clientele and they've been able to do it for the people and themselves, that's a good sign that that person probably knows or has a certain level of education and can deliver a certain amount of results. And I think a lot of people who are like, oh, like, I don't want to pay that. That's extortionate. And it's like, well, you're not my customer then. That's, you know, you're not my client, et cetera. So that was, that was really valuable. So I just want to really underscore that. So I think people are either not valuing their own service or they're not valuing the experience or the professionalism of someone who is charging something that's a little bit higher, but is delivering a far more elite service. I don't know if you want to comment on that before we move on. Yeah. I mean, no one, no one talks shit to like Porsche that their cars are expensive. It's like, just go buy a fucking Toyota then, man. Like they're out there. Just go, it's like, it's not like Porsche's calling you up and be like, Hey, you want to buy one of our cars? It's like the fucking dealerships there. Like you, yeah. And I can, I understand like I've been on both sides of the coin where it's like, charge very little and like you have the headaches and you know i always say to people like you have to kind of endure that like you can't come out of the gate and like immediately think because there is a there is a value in experience that you need to kind of you need to take it on the chain and for no other reason like look at least you're in this for the long game like you're willing to make little money for very valuable service for a long time once you get so frustrated with others that you think aren't providing the same value then you start to charge what you're worth um, and I think there's like, you kind of alluded to a little bit of a disclaimer there because there are people who, you know, jump right to the top floor and try to masquerade value with the price, which is something you got to be careful. Like for me, it was when I up, started upping my rates when I was in practice, I, I had to elevate my service to another level because I, I probably could have gotten away with the service I was giving at the price that I was now charging at a higher rate. But now I always want to exceed in value. And I always want, you always want to over deliver. Um, so as I charge more, I needed to over deliver on my service. And frankly, it's it held me to a level of accountability that has made my service, whether it be the courses I develop now or the, you know, the treatments or like when I work in person with, with some of my athletes, like it's gotta be top drawer. It has to be world-class because I'm 
charging that much. So, uh, and not to put too fine a point on it, but I think it's one of the best things to hold yourself accountable. And just, it's a good way to start to weed out for most people. Like, like, do you have faith in what you're doing? Because if you're charging a lot and you have trouble sleeping at night, it's like, maybe you need to take a hard look in the mirror and maybe you haven't done the reps to actually warrant charging what you want to charge. Right? There's a difference between making money and earning money. And I very much like to think that I earn the money that I, that I make. And, and a lot of people are out there just trying to make a lot of money. It's like, no, no, you have to, have to earn that money. So I think that's getting that in some people's heads because it is tricky when like doubling back to the original question around betting, it can be extremely tricky because you need to see on the other side is like, okay, who's, who's worth it. Who's of like the moral and ethical standard that what they're charging is what they're delivering. And then, and then some. Yeah. It's always multifaceted. Like you said, and there's always a rule against the law. So it's sort of having those foundational things or, or the main key, key areas of scope in mind, but then also going, well, hang on, the, this could be a bit of a gray area here with this person and giving someone the benefit of the doubt, et cetera. But I think, you know, something I learned from Apple as well, before we digress into that is always under promise, always over deliver. And sometimes by increasing your prices, you have got to step up. It does make you step up. But like you said, there's, there's a bit of a process. I think speaking to some of my mentors and was looking at pricing when I was starting was that like, you know, where do you start? Where do you go? And it's like, well, look at look, if you believe and you just said, it, if you believe in your service, then you charge that. If you fully believe that you can give that, but if you're not quite there yet, perhaps just pull it back, gain that experience, build it up. Like you said, you know, always improve your value, whether that's the way you deliver your service, whether that's even like the, um, material or the programs, even the way it looks, it feels the interaction process. You can make sure you're delivering that, like you said, world-class service to raise the industry standard. Before we digress, because I, I want to talk to you about Apple quickly and your, your time there, but this is a really good question, Jordan. I get it a lot, um, even at, at my level. And it's, you know, how do you put your prices up? Where do you go? This is something that I'm also interested in. What is the thought process behind that? How do you formulate it? What are your opinions on how and when to put up pricing and how have you done it? And you touch base on a little bit there to consistently increase this value. And this is kind of going to adjunct onto another question I have so we can get into it now because, hey, draw knowledge, it's what we do, um, which is for practitioners, what should they be doing to continually educate themselves uh, in the realms of not just uh, from a, an educational perspective, but also, for example, like a hands-on perspective, because there's obviously this big gap between, oh, well, you've got a nice piece of paper, but you've got shit all experience, but you've got loads of experience, but you don't have this CSCS or whatever it is on these letters behind your name, but this person could be absolutely killing it. So uh, what's your thoughts on that? <clears throat> yeah. To answer the first question, let me answer the second question. At the end of the day, it's not about what you know, it's about what you can prove, right? Like that's from what well, I think I pulled that from training day. That's in law abiding citizen. That's sort of like an overarching principle. And that's why people who have 20 and charms have an easier time selling shit on the internet because clearly they've proven something, right? Yeah. So it is really not about what you know, it's about what you can prove. Um, so being able to like highlight a body of work, whether that is your own physical body or like you said, if you have cases where um, you have worked with clients at a level that you want to operate at and you can continue to provide um, to provide a service to that level and get and get a positive outcome. So it's um, 
experience, I went working for free, which is kind of a weird paradoxical way of thinking. Like when I was young, young, like in, in my career, like I didn't, I, there was time, money and energy, right? It's very rarely you have all three, right? Fuck. I mean, I had less than no money. I was like in a, a lot of debt and, and was living in a very expensive place in San Francisco. Um, not that my place was very expensive, just every place in San Francisco is super expensive, but I had, um, time and I had energy. So, you know, whether that's working for free in the sense of free creating content for social media to leverage an e-commerce platform, which was like kind of my early strategy, or whether it was free working with someone who couldn't afford my services, who, who valued it, but couldn't pay for it. Um, you know, and then you, you bring up Apple. It's like, you know, that was something where I was working 40 hours a week, seeing 250 patients and I absolute, just a machine of an operation in a corporate wellness setting, especially at a company like that. So I, I was able to get a lot of experience and then I would volunteer as a strength coach at a high school. And I, so I think people, and it speaks more to the times, man, like I'm sure you get this, like people think that they're entitled to shit. Like I graduated with a bunch of kids that were just entitled, like, oh, I, ha I have my money license now. Okay, I, I would like to have, where is this money that I pick up now? Um, excuse me, do you have the money? I have this I have this big piece of paper. Who do I talk to to get the money that I've been promised? Like, dude, no one owes you fucking shit, man. Like, take a number. Um, so I was, I don't know, working for free. And I had one of my one of my clients, she's actually like one of the strongest powerlifters in the world, a lady named Sarah Beacon out of San Francisco, or out of San Francisco or Oakland rather. Um, she's a clinical neuro, no, sorry. Yeah, no, she's a clinical neuropsychologist. So a light year smart, like Netflix. She's a real doctor. I just play one on Instagram. And I did an initial consult with her and I probably shouldn't be mentioning this, but long story short is she said, I'm not coming back. And I was like, oh fuck, like that's weird. She's like, I'm not coming back until you triple your rates. I was like, oh. Okay, well, that's kind of a good thing. Um, and so as far as maybe to answer your first question now is when to know when to up your rates, what's your most valuable commodity as a clinician or as a person? It's not money, it's time. So once you start like working to a point, whether it's for free or for money, that it starts to impact the amount of time. Like I know people with like no one on their schedule that are trying to up their rates 20%. Dude, you got some time here. Like you got to fill out this weight class first before you go punch it above it. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that was it for me. It was like, all right, every single time I, and you know, you make a jump and then you lose some people and you lose some headaches and you lose some bad patients. And then you gain some people who are more attentive and more invested both mentally and, and monetarily. And then once that schedule starts to fill and, you know, I was at the outer limits and, of what I wanted to spend. So last going off, I was working in practice. It was about 20 hours a week. Most I, I did an hour, maybe hour and a half with each person. That was my capacity. Anything more than that, the work started to suffer. So once I hit 20 hours a week consistently, rates went. Once I hit 20 hours a week consistently, rates went up. So, because uh, what would happen is I would start to buy back my time. And, and so I would be able to make, you know, usually make more money with the jumps in, in price. But I had more time and that would allow me to leverage that time into, into building an online business, into, you know, investing time in the podcast or just training more or doing stuff that I wanted to do. But it's, and here's the caveat, 
you have to be able to full fill your slate first, right? You have to be able to get to jam 40 hours a week, 200. You can't just, you gotta earn your stripes, right? A lot of people will go like, oh, yeah, I really, I really like my morning walks and I wanna be able to meditate. So I'm not gonna start working till 10.30. It's like, man, fuck you, man. Like, that's just, if you wanna retire when you're 50, you gotta work at 5 a.m. when you're 22, like, or 25 or whatever. Um, so, and that's something that a lot of people now I noticed are just starting to skip the queue. Like, oh, I don't know. I'm just going to charge out the nose. And then once I, it's like, that's not how it works, man. Like take, take a number. Um, and then to, to kind of speak to upskilling, I think the challenge with most people is they get stagnant with like uh, a, a non-specific clientele. And look, there's, you know, general pop need to get treated too, which is fine. Um, but I would take on more complicated cases. I would take on uh, better athletes in most cases and, and work for free. Like, there's a, just for example, like one of my, one of my guys now that I work with, I worked with him for free when he was a quarterback at San Jose state university. So on top of everything else I was doing, like, this is a real, I, you know, when you come up through a clinical setting in school, you kind of get like the soccer dad or like the, the lawyer mom and you just like, all right, like do you work out? Yeah. You know, I try to get an orange theory once a week and it's like, Whew, okay, then really having a hard time sharpening the sword here. This one's a little tough. And then, you know, just go out and volunteer and ended up meeting the strength or the strength coach for the San Jose State University and had three or four guys that off season that I was working with to um, to uh, just do some rehab stuff with them. I did it all for free and I did it weekly and I treated them through the majority of their college careers. And three of them went on to the NFL and now I have you know, a handful of guys from that one experience that I work with that are now NFL players. And that's scary, dude. Like that's, you freak it out. These guys, you know, some guys that you're working with that are worth, they're making in 17 weeks, they'll make a couple million dollars. And if they have a non-contact ACL, that's on you, right? If they come in at night, if they're slower, if they're weaker, if they're fatter, like that's on you. But, you know, I think the, the heightened consequence of dealing with that, clientele forces you to upskill so there's in working in that arena it's like that forced me to start like what do these guys need right do they do i need better manual skills to work with this guy do i need better programming skills do i need to revisit periodization models do i need to revisit sprint mechanics do i need to revisit um you know shoulder anatomy like what do i what do i need here um so i think that's the biggest it's like you know don't promote yourself to failure. Like don't swing for the fence. Like don't be some green kid, you know, going up to Tom Brady, be like, I got you, bro. Gotcha. Learn this third semester. We're sweet. But at the same time, like you need to start comfortably punching or uncomfortably punching above your weight class with the confidence. Like, all right, I can, I can overtake this task, but I need to, in order, in order to do so, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Bit of cooking going on. A little bit. We're going to relocate. <laughs> Sorry. there's no there's other couches in the house there's not other stones in the house i think i don't know we just got here yesterday there might be oh well this is a this is the house tour then for the people watching on youtube yeah brilliant you know do a little mtv cribs for the for those at home why not they're bringing it back yeah. are they actually they should i love that show yeah co will cut will we will it's covid covid mtv cribs yeah <laughs> But no, I mean, like, yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff in there, Jordan, as well. And I think for the listeners to take that in because, 
to reiterate that last bit, you know, having and punching slightly above it, like you've got to be slightly uncomfortable to a degree. Like you said, there's, there's obviously things where you're not going to go from one extreme to the other because you're just going to fall flat on your face. But to be able to, you know, push yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, it forces you to become a better coach or it should do because you have to re-educate. There's that pressure on you. Like you said, you're working with these athletes. You're like, shit, I, I got to deliver now. I got to do this. So where's the knowledge and, you know, what do I need to actually reinvest in and what areas am I lacking in? So some really, really valuable points there to, to quickly move on to, I want to talk quickly about Apple. Um, you know, you obviously want a machine. It's an unbelievable company. You worked at the headquarters in Cupertino, if I'm not mistaken quickly, cause I imagine there's so much to unpack there, but what were the main things that you learned from working in that environment with that high volume and even things that you may have got from Apple and um, what, what were those things that perhaps you still use today that were applicable from that experience? Yeah, I mean, great question. As oftentimes, like people in like the, the sporting physique community just don't think of the corporate experience as something that's valuable. But uh, I think the first one is you learn to treat and train the person, not the symptom. Like, dude, you see 250 people a week, like, let me, like, Cole's notes for you, you don't care. You don't care after like person 30, you just don't give a shit. Um, because it's all like low back, like oh my low back hurts. Oh, my, my neck hurts. It's like all the here day in day out. But like, there's pretty interesting backstories, especially with like the vetting process that they've done for their employees. Like if they're in your office, like they are way smarter than you. And you know, that old adage of like, don't be the smartest guy in the room. It's like, I'm good. Like everyone there was, you know, P double PhD, MIT, postdoc at Harvard, you know, Cal, like every Ivy League school was represented. And then, you know, not to mention, like you get to deal with like the director level, and the CEOs and the VPs and all that, which was just being around people that have to operate at that caliber. Um, just, you know, you kind of have one mouth and two ears and it's probably best to shut one and keep two open sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think, a big takeaway was, you know, you start to get pretty confident and like kind of maybe even cocky, like, oh, like neck pain, and low back pain is like, that's kind of good. But then you get bored. And then if we get bored, then you lose the passion for it. So for me, it was like, you have to sort of have the passion for people and, but you have to be adaptive too, which I think is the biggest skill. Like every 15 minutes I was walking into a room with a very different person, with a very different experience, with a very different history, with a very different background, with a very different, uh, you know, view on who the hell I was, which is like, I know what I look like. And I look like this when I was practicing there. So it's like, you have to be pretty sensitive to like people's interpretations of you, which I think is something that that taught me that's invaluable. Um, it's like, it's again, if it's, if they have a problem with me, that's my problem, not theirs really. Like, and most people might look at it the other way around, but learning how to like be malleable in situations when like, you know, you, I, you walk into a room and there's a Muslim lady there with her husband and you're like, Oh shit, this is going to be a fucking nightmare. How do I navigate this social situation? It's like, I have to put hands on this person who's like on overwatch and it's like, you're like nothing, whatever, cultural, religion, sweet. Like I don't have a dog in the fight, but how do I respectfully navigate the situation? Yeah. Some people you'd walk in and they would have like, they would have a gun that they would put down on the counter. It's like, Oh, okay. Like that's, that's a thing. Like, yeah, yeah. like can okay. carry weapons, security. Like, like I grew up in Canada. I'm not used to that. 
and then you have some people that would come in and like you didn't know like what gender they were you don't know whether to say like hello sir ma'am and or you got to call them a different thing and like, yeah sweet so it's like you you very much like you you get to distill out to the reduced essence of people very quickly or you learn that as a skill which yeah. i think is uh, I think super valuable when you start to communicate outside of like your siloed circles. Uh, so that was probably the biggest takeaway was just like getting very good at like walking into a room and being like, not like a chameleon in the sense that I was, you know, I was Jewish in one room and I was a Christian in another and Muslim in another. Like you still kind of have your core values. Not that religion's really high up on my list of core values, but like you can still kind of be yourself, but be the version of yourself that is most palatable to the other person in the room, mm -hmm. which I think from a coaching perspective is super valuable because you can just help more people that way. Um, so that was probably the biggest takeaway. The second and maybe arguably the, the tide for first might be a better way to look at it in just Apple as a company itself is the idea of like sophistication and simplicity, which are the same, but different. Like on the surface, sophisticated and simple should look the exact same, but what's underneath the hood um, is going to decipher which is which. Like simple is surface level, right? But if you have a deep understanding, the surface level still looks the same, but the what's under the surface, what's under the hood is a lot more complex. So I always tell this story because um, I talk a lot about program design and exercise execution, things like that. And I'm not inventing new exercises or anything, but looking at like how to optimize and and properly program these 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 exercises is something that we talk a lot about in our courses so i always make this an example of this guy who's a patient of mine he came in first visit i asked him what he did for apple and so i just i do a lot of the uh the design work for the marketing team i was like oh that's really neat he's like yeah i'm mostly like center around the billboards i'm like Fuck, you guys got the easiest job in the world are you serious have you seen an apple billboard before Black phone, white backdrop, iPhone 10, 11, whatever, six, whenever I was there. I was like, oh, dude, that sounds like a pretty good gig. And this guy's like stressed out of his mind, ripping his hair. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you don't have nothing? And I was like, uh, whoa, what? And like, it's just a white phone on a black background. Because we go through thousands and thousands of iterations and the way the light hits the corner and the degree in which the phone is tilted and the position. Of, and he's just going through all these variables. I'm like, holy shit. And then as I start to talk about exercise programming and it's like, I'll put together a program for an athlete and it'll take me you know, a better part of an hour to kind of, kind of construct the exercise selection and kind of put things in a place that makes sense with like, all right, we're concurrently training on the field and in the gym and here's our kicking volume or our throwing volume or our sprinting volume. And what do we do in the weights and what's going to be complimentary and what's the injuries and all that. And at the end of the day, it's like you look at a program and it's just kind of like on the surface, there's probably any, I don't know, anywhere between four to six to eight to 12 exercises. Some are paired together, some aren't, but it's like reps and sets and maybe some tempo and rest periods. And that's really it. And it's like, well, fuck, why, how did that take you four hours? Or how did that take you a few hours to do? And then that's really kind of like, oh, okay. It's a sophisticated program in the sense that when my guys unpack it, it's like, okay, yeah, I'll just go in and I'll do like some, some, like some plyo stuff and then do this and that. I'm like, you unappreciative little pricks. Do you have any idea what went into this? This is the most, this is 15 years of experience and education. But that's the point. They, they don't, they, I, if I have to explain like, we're going to do this lateral box jump to depth draw. Fuck's sake. It's like, like the goal of, I think what they taught me, like what that experience taught me was like, 
from a coaching perspective is look, you can, you can buy phones that do exactly what iPhones do. So there's nothing new on this. And they came up with a rose gold phone like 12 years after rose gold was cool. Like Michael Kors was doing rose gold to death. And I was like, wait a minute, we'll do it. And it's like the, the, the goal of a good coach isn't to like, isn't to make your clients think that they can't do it without you is to make them want to never have to do it without you. Right. And that's what Apple does really well because they do things so sophisticated, right? Like it's just the user experience is just like, here's a bunch of, things on the phone but when you look at like the chip and what's underneath the surface like holy fuck there's a lot going on here i think that's really what like something that i lean on the most is that idea of like sophisticated things are inherently simple to understand but they're they're vastly complex kind of beneath the surface and that's kind of a principle that that i use like we just taught a course last weekend and that and that that analogy or that that story comes up every single time because i think it's it's such a good takeaway because there's a perception of scarce resources in the fitness industry. So people have to have a shtick or an angle. It's like, what about it? What if being really good was your shtick? And that's Apple. Apple's shtick is they're just really fucking good. That's why I'm talking to you on a MacBook and I'll text you from an iPhone. Like their like their shtick is nothing more than just being the best. And it's like, it's just a computer. It's just a phone, but it's the best phone. It's the best computer. And I think coaches with, they feel like, okay, I can't, get ahead in the industry if I don't have a shtick it's like well, does Apple worry about getting ahead They're the largest liquid asset company ever to exist like they're fine because they just do the best so they can release the same fucking rectangular plastic glass phone every year and you're gonna buy it they know you're gonna buy it and you can put squat and lunge and deadlift and whatever in a program and it'd still be the best and I think that's probably something that I think resonates most with the coaches that I teach because everyone's trying to find that, like that shtick. It's like, just be really fucking good. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to underpin. Cause I mean, once again, great answers, Jordan, a lot of, a lot of good stuff here. And I love it. Um, I think the first thing that, that came to mind there is like, you really learn to sharpen the sword real quick when you are, you've got high volume, Something that I recommend from personal experience to most people, I say, hey, look, like if you're just new, like just like you've never worked before, like just literally go work in a cafe, like go work in the busiest shop you can find and just deal with every type of person you can find, young, old, cultures, arrogant, rude, because you're just going to get real good real fast. And then when you get into your profession or whatever it is you want to do, you're just going to be so much better because... I feel a lot of people are sheltered and as soon as they come up against someone who questions their belief or like you said, they might be like, I've always had a bit of an eccentric look, especially when I had hair, I've got a few tattoos going, I had piercings and you know, people will just have an opinion and that's fine. But a lot of people, like you said, you take it personally, but it's like, well, that's my thing. Like I've just got to be unreactive to that. And that builds a lot of really good communicational skill set with a lot of people. And uh, so I think that's a really valid point. And then moving on to one of the last things you said, just to, again, underscore that people overlook simplicity. And I, I have a saying that the art of sophistication is simplicity, because as you said, like on the surface level, it's like, oh yeah, that's pretty simple. But the principles of which they confine to can be very, very complex. But I think one of our jobs as practitioners and coaches is to be able to go, well, okay, I have X person in front of me. 
how can I communicate this in a way that this person understands it? So I'm not like just, you know, trying to confuse them depending on who it is. Some people want it more technical. Some people want it a little bit more simple, but in a way that they can absorb it themselves and go, Oh, cool. So you're telling me I've got this wrong and this is why it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. And you have to be so adaptable, um, in that situation. Let's uh, quickly before I, cause I was going to go into the next question, but you brought up a good point often. And this is something I've struggled with myself over the years is that you'll second guess yourself. Like you said, you're trying to find the shtick. You're trying to find this point of difference. And sometimes you're trying to find a point of difference to be different. And with the clients I coach and everything I do, I generally keep things. I have a backbone of science there, so I know what I'm doing. But then I also get then the digression of real life experience and what works with it. But I find that the basics are the best. Like you said, you got your squat variants, you got your hip hinge variants, you got your single leg variants. Obviously, you know, you need to customize things for certain clients depending on, you know, their abilities, their injuries, their skill sets. But a lot of the time, things are simple. There's only so many exercises in the gym you can do. There's only so many chords on a guitar, yet people are still making new songs. And I have come to the realization that it's not what you do, but it's how you do it. And this is something that we're going to delve into in a little bit. And I am so, so passionate about skill acquisition and execution and movement because I have realized in my own career that, wow, I was, I've been squatting for a long time, but the past two to three years of squatting, why have I been able to put so much more load on the bat and develop my muscles in such a better way? Nutrition and rest aside, right? Oh, because now I understand how to move biomechanically through that pattern better. I know the muscles that are being turned on. I know that, oh shit, I just, I was just getting it fucking wrong, like completely wrong. But it was through learning from other coaches, listening a lot, observing, finding what worked for me, you know, and understanding those principles. So now when, you know, as, as you do on a very regular basis, you can get in front of someone and probably very quickly identify, okay, I can see what's going wrong here. And on the piece of paper, it will still be written squat or high bar squat, low bar. Like you said, you get your rep sets tempo and it's like people could get this program from you and get it from someone else and go, well, he's kind of giving me the same exercises. Yeah, but now you've showed them how to do it. Therefore, you've plugged the power on, turned on the surge, and now you're actually getting rubber on the road, if that makes sense. So I'd just love to quickly touch base on the, the art of simplicity, but also movement and and why it's so important to learn good technique and how to move properly and this is kind of something we'll probably circle back to because i just feel that from observing a lot of coaches and other personal trainers i can see where it goes wrong like the exercises are great that they're prescribing and arguably you could always say oh maybe we do a high or a low bar or whatever it is but i often see that it's just they're not getting taught correctly and i think that when you teach people how to move through these patterns and learn how to engage the muscles, teach them about intra-abdominal pressure, you know, whatever they need to know at a, at a rate that is congruent to them, I find that can be the difference between actually getting results. And uh, I guess quickly, because I'm off on a tangent here, I often use this example. I say like, we've got, let's, let's look at any gym, right? Let's say commercial gym, because most people in a strongman gym, they're pretty jacked. They know what they're doing. I said, you know, these people have trained for years, but how come they all look like they, most of them don't really look like they train. Like you don't see many developed physiques in a commercial gym, but yet they're doing the lap pull downs. They're doing the vertical horizontal push pulls that hopefully some of them are doing the squat variants. Everyone's bench pressing, but yet they don't look developed. And I'm like, why is this? I tell my clients, why do you think that is? 
the power of a coach is to show you that, okay, we're going to get on this lat pull down now, but I'm going to show you to engage your lats, retract your scapula, whatever it is. I'm going to show you how to do this. Like you've never done it before. And lo and behold, they're like, I've never done a lat pull down like that before. I'm like, no, you just swung off the machine, but now you're actually using your muscles. So can you see now why you can download any program online and it's fine. But if you learn how to do it, this is the difference. Yeah. It's twofold, man. Like, you know, people are afraid of what they don't know, but that stands for coaches as well. Like I know plenty of coaches that again, like people think they can skip the queue in not having a coach and coaches think they can skip the queue and not learning how to coach. And this is like an eternal argument that, I, that I'm having, especially with like the, even the leveling effects of social media where everyone is technically on the same platform. Um, yeah. And that's where experience I think really comes in and, you know, to speak much about like, you know, how I vetted chiropractors like, look, they have to train. If you have a coach that doesn't train and fuck there's coaches out there that don't train. I was getting into that. Like, I hate to use the word argument because I really don't think it does that social interaction any justice. And that defames actual real arguments that people have. I was conversing with a coach the other day that doesn't work out. And I'm like, why the fuck am I even talking to you? What are you going to tell me? Right. You gonna, can you learn to swim on the internet? Like shut the fuck up. It's so frustrating because again, like whether it's people trying to skip the queue, thinking they can do it on themselves, thinking it's coaches trying to skip the queue that, Oh, I can get a social media thing and I can like, you know, just because that's the thing. Simplicity, it can be a can, simplicity should be the veil of a very sophisticated program that is grounded in proper execution. But you can put two programs next to one another and not have and simplicity is veiling ignorance. And a lot of times people do that. They use the like, Oh, my program is simple because it's the best way. It's like, no, like simple can also be bad, which is hard. It makes the vetting process hard because you can have people that like write two different programs, but one is, you know, promoting proper execution and the other is like, Oh, you want to get better at squatting? Just squat. It's like, fuck dude, you don't even fucking trade, man. Like that's so, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, and it's, it's a hard, it's a, definitely like an industry divided when it comes to coaches as well. Cause there are coaches that are worth their salt who have, you know, put in the reps and sets and there's people who have tried to buy their experience and, and, you know, put on a front in social media. And, and at the end of the day, those programs might look very similar, but like when you said the rubber hits the road, it's like, that's two different experiences. And that's really what it's all about. So it's, it's tough, man. I would hate to be a consumer in this market for sure, because it could be very misleading on who to talk to. You know, some people will just start throwing around terms that they rip off of other people that are smart and, you know, they're like, they're, little birds that sit in the mouth of alligators and just try and stand on the shoulders of others and call themselves tall. And like, I'm now not out who's going on a tangent. Right. Um, but it's, it's frustrating for me to sit like at the table of this industry and with people that frankly, I don't think you have a seat at the table. And it's like, that's a super arrogant thing for me to say. Cause like at the end of the day, who the fuck am I? But at, at the very least, I've got underweight. I've continued to progress in my own. Like you said, like, fuck, you've been squatting for how long? But now that you understand, like, you know, the, 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 the art of the simplicity and sophistication and the execution and the devil in the detail, you're still able to make progress. Like, well, if you're able to make progress at your level, imagine what you can do for a client as you can progress them from a, from a novel state to an adaptive state. Like that's, that's huge. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's tough, man. Like, and it's, it's not an easy thing. But I think people need to, give it the time that it's worth. And if it's not worth the time, then, you know, go do something else. Yeah. 
That's, I mean, look, it's a really thought provoking line and I'm sure there's a lot more can be said on the topic because fundamentally, like when we're all human, we're all going to make mistakes. I hold my hand up. I'm like, look, I've learned a shit ton. I've made a fuck ton of mistakes, but I still got a whole lot to learn. And I'm the first one to admit that. But like, you need that digression between, you know what? It's like, yeah, well, I'm confident. Like I can do this. I can at least back this up. I can get results. And then there's, like you said, there's just this, this is why we're doing this, right? This is why we're on this call because we're, we're passionate about raising the industry standard and creating an awareness of people who want to listen and learn more. And we're not saying, hey, this is the way. We're just saying, hey, look, we're just going to share some thoughts and experiences. And this is what we found. And if you can take some gold out of this, then you know what? That's a job done. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. To, to shift on to, because before we go, I'd like to talk about your, so you, you, know, you, you work in this corporate environment you work for Apple, you, you learn all this. And then you go now with, um, you're working with high performance athletes, high risk athletes, and you're working with rugby players, man, they're smashing their bodies together. They're getting all sorts of injuries. <laughs> it's a great sport. Um, what, what are the, and it's the same sort of question, Jordan, what, what did you perhaps carry over from the corporate world apart from what you've mentioned? And what did you then learn now from being in this different world in this different environment? And what are the things that you, you now have taken and still use with strength athletes today for from working with athletes who are on the go and, you know, pretty much physically, you know, damaging each other, if you like, because that, that's a tough game. Yeah. I, I mean, to come from corporate to athletics, uh, structure and communication are probably the biggest takeaways. Like a company like that runs like a Swiss watch and has to, or a Swiss Apple watch in that case. Um, but the communication thing, right? Like going from a room with, you know, very different personalities and very different experiences and backgrounds and interpretations and perceptions and being able to mold that and understanding how important communication is in that setting. And then bringing that to a fit, like it could not be more opposite environment, 18 year old kids, very prestigious school. You know, their student athletes is a very different dynamic as well. And rather than having one-on-one, you're one to 20, one to 30 in a, in a, in a weight room. So, you know, being an effective communicator, I think is, is integral. Uh, and now even more so, like now that I work remotely with a lot of my, a lot of my guys, like being able to effectively communicate and having some systems, like it's pretty much the same, you know, from an organizational perspective, you know, I have, you know, a handful, a handful of athletes that are higher end and, uh, I need to be structured in my systems in the way that we, we communicate. So their programs need to be attended to their videos need to be critiqued. You know, we have to get on face to face. We're on phone calls numerous times a week. Um, you know, we need to monitor now, like, okay, what's the plan if training camp is this week? What's the plan if training camp is the next week? Uh, and then taking on, you know, nutrition as well and making sure everything is kind of maintaining its checks and balances. So I really think like systems and structure, and this carries over into business as well, like organization systems and structure, uh, and then communication. Like if you have those two things, regardless of the medium in which you're playing in, whether it's remote coaching, high performance athletes, whether it's team setting, collegiate strength and conditioning, whether it's, you know, one-on-one corporate client or, um, you know, patient practitioner relationship. If you have those two components, at least as something you're aware of that needs to be worked on communication and organization primarily, like you're going to, you're going to be in a good spot. Yeah. Communication seems to be just where a lot of the time it falls down. I mean, and this is every aspect of life, whether it's business, whether it's relationships, um, 
any any you know any service say you've got a house and you know you sort of you've got a builder and you're like i want this job done i think the more effective you can be with communication and understanding that hey like this is the communication um the client getting them to sometimes go hey like what did you hear from that because sometimes they were like oh you want me to do this and you're like no that's exactly not what i said but (laughs) but it's so simple to just ask that hey does this make sense and what, what did you get out of that? And then sometimes even straight away, you can just nip that in the bud. It's like, oh shit, maybe that was my bad. I used a, a different language. But as you know, you work with different people and you learn what like you might, it might be a certain cue that you're teaching and you might say like, screw the floor or something. And then for someone else, it might be like, okay, push the floor away. And for some reason that just, that just resonates with that person. And it's like, oh, cool. Like, and you start to learn that. Right. And then you sort of add that to your like, proverbial tool belt etc so yeah i think like like you said you know you mentioned a lot about communication but i just want to once again re-highlight that for the listeners that i think don't underestimate that element and being able to continually improve that communication process but you know it's not a one-size-fits-all and being open to change and also as you said before jordan we've got two ears and one mouth for a reason so try and listen more intently and effectively yeah, and I think like a big takeaway there is like if you remain a student to a certain degree, you can learn what works for you and what doesn't. And just understanding that there are things that don't work for you when learning things and there are things that are should immediately shift the way that you perceive how it is you teach things. Right? Like we're in a situation now where we're, you know, we're teaching coaches and trainers sometimes small as groups of 10 as, you know, in conferences as large as group of, you know, three or 400 people. So it's like, I need to know how they learn. I need to know what they've learned to successfully unpack first what they, if I'm trying to teach them something new, I need to know what they know first, know how to unpack their preconceived biases. And then once I have that blank slate, I can introduce a new idea. But that only really comes from like trying to learn, period. Like I know that because when I start to learn or revisit concepts that I've already learned. Like, okay, am I more visual? Am I more auditory? Am I more tactile? Uh, am I more experiential? Like, how is it that I'm going to actually, how is it that I learn? What are the ways to learn? And then how can I like vary how I teach things based off of people's biases and how they learn things? Yeah, no, for sure. Which, which is a nice little segue into one of my last main questions, which is, you know, when you're, when you're on the road and you're teaching people, what are... So, and again, for the listeners, uh, and we'll, we'll share some links at the end so they can perhaps link up and, and come to one of these masterclasses, symposium seminars. Like, what are the most common injuries you see in the strength training realm? And what are some initial, perhaps, actionable takeaways that people can start to do to even test and identify themselves or even things that they should and could be doing? Perhaps it might be activation work, warm up, cool down, it could be stretching. I know it's a big question and it can be quite specific, but if there was any sort of things that people can do that are listening or even start to educate themselves and learn more to improve their mobility, strength and balance. Yeah. So I think for me, when we look at and whether or not we're trying to purposely create, I guess starting with like a definition around function is usually where these conversations begin um, because function is a word that's sort of been bastardized over its kind of amalgamation with the fitness industry. Um, so it's often has like buzzy salesy connotations to it, but like function our highest order function as humans is walking and breathing. Right. So if we can understand like the deeper mechanics, cause like walking and breathing doesn't just affect our biomechanics. It affects our biochemistry. It affects our, 
uh, it affects our metabolism, our nervous system. So these are really our highest order adapted processes of walking and breathing. So it, when knowing that and starting to restore function when it comes to improving pain, like looking at gait cycle movements, looking at um, you know scapula humeral rhythm and how we can start to reinstate these with exercise. So common injuries are often, they're often coined as overuse injuries. Right, bicep tendonitis at the shoulder, rotator cuff tendonitis, hamstring tendonitis, distal proximal, you know, common forearm flexor, extensor tendonitis, and so on and so forth. People are not using these joints that much that they're falling apart, right? This, they are, uh, tendonitis, op, uh, uh, tendonitis, osis, and opathies are often cited as overuse. And I'm air quoting overuse for those watching. And oh, there's no such thing as an overuse injury. There's misuse injuries. Um, and that's where these sort of things get categorized into. So people use avoidance as a means of treatment, like avoiding provocation is a treatment. The, the issue is just waiting, waiting for you when you get to that particular tolerance, whether it be load, whether it be volume, whether it be frequency, whether it be what have you. So I think for me, it's like some takeaways, unilateral movements in the lower body. Why? Because gait cycle is unilateral movements in the lower body. Get in the overhead plane be able to create some sort of stability in that overhead position, um, be able to resist force functionally with your muscles in places where you can't resist force structurally, your bones, labrums, this, so on and so forth. Um, so I think some big takeaways is, you know, can you get into a flexion and external rotation position of the shoulder? Can you adequately extend and internally rotate your hip? All of these are just going to be manifestations of, you know, bipedal ambulation or walking or gait cycle. Uh, you know, look at the breathing mechanics, understand how the diaphragm plays in with the pelvic floor and the strap muscles in the neck. Uh, it's I'm really struggling to make this digestible in, in five minutes or less because it is, it is quite, again, sophisticated. But those are probably big high points. In a lot of programs, we're going to see unilateral movements. We're going to see unilateral movements unilaterally. We're going to see some movement in the overhead often as you give in context, especially working in the sports setting, that overhead work, work might come from on the field. We want to make sure we're touching kind of the high points of these end ranges of motion of hip extension, internal rotation of shoulder flexion, external rotation, um, being able to work muscles like the serratus and the rotator cuff, um, the glute med, the piriformis, the lateral rotators of the hip. So I look at the body kind of three hubs, shoulder, hip, and spine, peripheral shoulder and hip. You know, that's when the rotator cuff and the scapular stability and, and serratus anterior come into play, lateral hip, and, you know, adductors, adductors, glutes, and, and um, so glute med and adductor group, and um, then up into the core is kind of a different animal. But if you can kind of touch those three points or equate for, you know, shoulder function, hip function, spine function, you're going to be in a pretty good place, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And understand there's, there's a lot in there and hence why people need to come and obviously come to these classes and, and learn more in depth with time. Right. And we'll, uh, we'll drop some links in there at the end, get people along. And um, would you, would you say that with touching on those main components, like you said, a lot of the time, a lot of the issues, niggles, ramifications that people are having, they're often alleviated by getting what, what I like to use the analogy of you get the big rocks in the right places and all the pebbles fall favorably. Would you say that's generally the case when, you know, cause I imagine you, you speak to a lot of people like, Oh, Hey Jordan, man, like I got this, I got this kind of niggle here, man. or I got this thing here. And you're like, all right, cool. Well, let's, let's kind of go over the broad strokes first. And then by often doing, oftentimes doing that, people go, oh, actually, man, that that's starting to feel better now. Um, obviously, unless it's like a chronic, uh, or, or an acute injury that's happened or they've just done it and it's like, Oh, cool. Like you've, you've obviously just 
say strain your hamstring or something like that, which is a, a different animal. Yeah, I think to me, yes, to lay public, no, because what I define as big rocks, some people overlook as pebbles. Mm. And it's like, I think I hold more weight to certain things given my experience and kind of how I look at, at pain and performance. Um, so yeah, for me, it's like, you know, I have the same series of questions I ask everyone when they, when they come in, like, are you doing this? Are you not doing this? And it's so, it's so highly correlated that we could almost cause it, call it causal. And that's where like the experience factor comes in because my, my way of looking at it is, is not, I don't want to say it's not typical, but I think the industry standard of what those big rocks are is maybe a little bit misguided or one-sided because most people who are coaches don't come from a clinical background. So they don't have the experience. I don't want to say the understanding because I think everything that I teach is attainable. I mean, I grew up getting punched in the head playing hockey in Canada. Like I'm not the brightest bulb in the box by any stretch of the imaginations. But I think if you have an open mind and you're willing to shed your biases, the stuff that I teach is, is attainable at the very least. But I think the industry that I'm working in primarily with coaching, right? Cause I value it so much. I hope, cause I think they have such an ability to actually make a clinical difference. There is no discernible difference between the way I treated most of my patients from a clinical perspective and the way I trained most of my clients from a, from a, an actual training perspective or, and same to athletes from a sports performance perspective. So like, I think the, what the industry looks at as small rocks, I start to invest more weight into, um, just, you know, doing this for so long and at, at certain levels and in different arenas, wearing different hats, I, I think that, yes, absolutely. Like let's, let, let's not try to make this more obscure, but there's a certain level of detail you need to get to before you can start to make these distinctions. And unless you've gone there, like you don't really, in my opinion, have the, have the jurisdiction to start making these claims that these are the big rocks that everyone needs to do because it's like you're looking through a very small keyhole. Um, so yeah, for me, I ha absolutely have movement standards that I hold people to uh, and they are big rocks and the little niggles, like you said, sort themselves out. Uh, it, they're just not where most people look. And that's why most people are finding the same results. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I guess it's like you said, it's, it's, it's in many ways, there's, again, there's not a magic pill, right? I think a lot of people are of the mindset that they're looking for this. Oh, there's just this one thing that I need. This, there must be this one exercise or this one remedy or this, I don't know. And I think that's the whole sort of, binary mindset people are in in the fitness industry which is what i find in my experience one of the hardest things to get people out of and looking at things from a multifaceted approach and sort of going well hey maybe maybe it's not one thing maybe there's multiple things that we need to do here over time in the right you know consistency to to get a desired result rather than oh it's black or it's white it's like well maybe it's maybe it's shades of gray i don't know um before we wrap up because i know we're, we're, we're coming to time and i, I appreciate it Jordan, uh, a couple of rapid fire questions, but before my final question that I ask all my guests, these are a bit more fun, a bit more lighthearted. So whatever comes to mind, just uh, we'll, we'll move through them. My first question is, yes, if you could choose a superpower, what would it be and why? To read minds. To read minds? Why? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of what I do now is like I talked about is teaching. So, and a lot of teaching is understanding what people know, how they learned it, what their biases are. So if I could get into there, I could probably be a way more effective communicator if I could read people's minds. So that's, that for me is like kind of the ultimate. 
Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. That would definitely uh, speed up the process. All right. What about favorite meal? Or if you had one last meal, what would it be? Can be appetizer, drink, dinner, dessert, whatever you like. Uh, oh man, got a hit for the surf and turf cycle. I'd probably go steak, rare, walk it to the table. Something of the, the Wagyu persuasion would be preferred. Uh, sushi, salmon, nigiri, white rice, fish. Uh, probably throw it back with some cheesecake. And then, yeah, you could send me to the grave after that. I'd be happy. <laughs> nice. Very dense meal. You should definitely try hurricanes while you're in Australia then. That's going to be right up your alley. Oh, I missed it. I was, I was living right next to one in Bondi. Didn't do oh. it. Damn it. Oh, well, that's all right. I'll sort you out when you come to Queensland. One of my mates, he's yeah, a manager. So uh, yeah, it's, it's good stuff, man. Surf and turf. Um, if you could invite anyone to dinner, uh, any one person to speak to, dead or alive, who would it be? One. Yeah. I know it's hard if it's one. Oh, man. I'm probably going to give you a couple just because I feel... I, I, give, me, give, me, John, give me three. Give me three. John Stewart would be one for sure. Um. So John Stewart is a comedian, former political analyst. He hosted The Daily Show. I don't know if he, Trevor Noah does his job that he used to do, but mm. he's super interesting. I think he's like, I really like history. I really like, or I used to really like politics. Um, so he'd be one. Uh, Steve Prefontaine. Ah, yes. From Nike. He's just, yeah, he's just, I think the mindset of an athlete like that is something that's and I think iron Mike Tyson for sure. Those would be top three. Yeah. That's some good ones. And I'm sure you could learn a thing or two from those guys. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And my final question, Jordan, on a more serious note, which I ask all my guests is, could you identify, and this is something that we didn't quite have time to get into. And it was more about your personal experience. You touched base on it, you know, like you, you've had all these experiences and injuries, but could you identify uh, a fear that you've had in your life or something that you feared what it was how you overcame it and what you learned from that experience could be something big could be something small could be anything yeah you know it's funny because this is something i talk this is i lead most of my seminars off with this I, so first off the short answer is spiders i fucking hate spiders and here i am in australia like that um, <laughs> there's one in particular that i don't like because it's massive it's called the huntsman spider Oh yeah. Uh, my for yeah, if you're in Australia, you've, you've sure you've come across one of these or they've come across you. Um, so the way I've overcome it and, and learned to, and it wasn't like clinical cause I wasn't spending much time here, but the way I overcame it was, and this is something that I preface my courses with is like, is the same way I learned things. Cause like you learn a fear, which is kind of the interesting thing, right? Like kids aren't inherently scared of anything. We teach them this. Uh, and then that in itself is like super valuable as an educator. Like, okay, people are afraid of not knowing things. So I often talk about, and I'll question, I ask the exact same question to everyone. Every single course I start, I ask who's got a good fear. And, you know, there's needles or, um, or snakes or the boogeyman. But the best way to overcome a fear, whether that fear is like, because I'll be like, look, the, what you don't know is what you're afraid of. And you might not know some of the content that we go over. Might be the first time going into neuroanatomy or deeper into musculoskeletal anatomy or physics or biomechanics. But how you get over it is graded exposure. Right? This idea of graded exposure is the best way to learn. It's the best way to overcome fear. And that's really what overcoming a fear is, is learning to, to not be afraid of it. Because you learn to be afraid of it. And mm -hmm. it's just really know what the bias is because the fear is, is already laid out for you. So knowing how to unpack that is like, we just need creative exposure. So I remember the first time I saw it, I was 
freaked the fuck out. I jumped down like a set of stairs. It was like 14 or 15 steps. I was like, all right, I'm just going to plunge to my death. And then like, you know, I saw one from across the room. I was like, as long as that fucking thing stays over there, we're good. And then like one ran across my screen once. And I was like, oh, okay. But so graded exposure, I think, is, is the best way. So for me, it's spiders and it's probably nothing new or I'm not the only person who's suffered from that plight. Um, but I think the deeper meaning on the other end of it is like the idea of graded exposure. And that's how we learn. And that's really what fear is. And in the pursuit of learning, you're accepting a certain level of, of, of fear and a certain level of discomfort. But the more you see it, the more comfortable you come with it. And then you overcome it. Um, then you learn, right? When, regardless of what it is you're learning, learning that the huntsman just kills birds and not you, or, you know, learning that, learning a, a, an ascending track in the spinal cord or something like that. It's, it's very much similar. Yeah, no, that, that's actually, that's probably one of the best answers. I think that's great. And yeah, yeah. yes, <laughs> 10 points. Um, no, it's really good. I mean, it always elicits an interesting response, but uh, that one resonated with me because, I mean, it's cool that you start off with that as well. I mean, that's why I call fearless training is fearless training. For me, it has a very deep, uh, deeper rooted meaning. But everyone does have a fear. And I think a lot of the time, like you said, understanding your fear, a lot of the time mitigates fear because it's like a great example. I'll just learn like people say needles or surgery or something. And when you understand the process, the procedure, and then you start to unpack it, you're like, oh, like it's actually not that scary. But in your mind, you are conditioned to be like, this is this thing. And then you have all these preconceived ideas or horror stories. But then when you learn about it, you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's actually, yeah, that's, that's, that's not that scary. And you start to understand it. And then, yeah, the graded exposure thing. That's great. That's I've been having a lot of conversations about that lately with clients, you know, everyone's getting back into the gym who's night access and, you know, everyone's like going balls to the walls. I'm like, look, we are not going to be doing that. We are just going to take a graded exposure because otherwise we're going to be in how we're going to be out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's not the way to do it. So yeah, that, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing, Jordan. And I must admit those spiders been huge in Australia. I remember the first time I seen one, I shit myself. I was like, is that real? My mate's like, you just saw it run up the wall. And I'm like, that's, I can't even comprehend that. So yeah, um, Jordan, for people who want to learn more, for people who want to come to your seminars, they want to educate themselves, where's the best place to find you, more about yourself, listen, et cetera. Give me the goods. Um, so Instagram probably the best ways to find me at the underscore muscle underscore doc. Um, courses right now, obviously in person is up in the air and a lot of what we have in the pipe is fulfilling kind of private corporate contracts with some of the gyms we work with. But we do offer um, one course online that I teach live in person every week. So it's a 16 week curriculum. The next semester is starting in August. So we have about four weeks left of registration on that. Um, so that's gonna be found at www.pre-script.com. Uh, so that's gonna be a 16 week course that I've developed just to sort of, again, set sort of a new, a new standard. It's, it can be quite difficult, but uh, at the very least attainable. We've been running that course for about a year now. Um, and we have, geez, I don't know, a couple, maybe five, 600 coaches worldwide. Uh, so that's probably right now in the current landscape, that's probably the best place uh, as far as the education stuff goes is the online. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much it. If you guys have any questions, you can email me at jordan at themuscledoc.com. And, and that's usually kind of my best platform for communicating. Yeah, wicked dude. Now, awesome. Well, as always, and for the listeners, guys, I'll put all those links in the show notes or, or the description below if you're watching on YouTube. And once again, Jordan, just want to thank you for your time. It's been a great conversation. Um, 
very thought provoking. Lots of other questions I'd love to answer perhaps around two in the future. So uh, thank you again for your time, my friend. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Thank you. My pleasure. And guys, as always, for everyone watching, uh, if it is safe to do so when you're not driving, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to it on. And of course, we will be back next week with another fantastic guest and episode. And in the meantime, as always, stay fearless. Thank <laughs> you.